That was a beautiful New Hope. Thank you for participating in that. And if you're new to New Hope, worship varies considerably every weekend. Uh, Michael has a degree in jazz music, so you can imagine that each weekend you come, you might get something a little bit different. But I'm really grateful for the hymns, uh, the rerouting. This morning, we're addressing another hard question. If you're new here, we're working through a series this summer called Hard Questions, and this is the 10th one in the series. Uh, this particular one is, Is God Angry? I was talking with an individual this week who attends here, and he asked me what we were working on this weekend, and I said, the subject, is God angry? And he said, is that a question or a statement? Okay, depends on how you approach it and what your perspective is. I think the best way to answer the question and get a, a firm grip on this is going to not only God's Word, but going specifically to Romans chapter 1. So I'm going to ask you if you would do that. If you have a Bible with you this morning, do that. Look in the chair in front of you if you don't, and you'll see a hard copy of one and maybe the seat rack in front of you, or maybe you have it electronically on your phone, and you can follow along that way. If you're new to the Bible and you don't really know how to find even Romans, you'll find the verses up on the screen this morning, and that will help you as well. Before we step into this, I'm going to ask you if you would pray with me. Let's ask God to be our teacher. Father, we come before you recognizing that we can come just as we are, and the requirement that you have for us is that we would come, and that we recognize that we are broken and we need to be mended, but also at a time like this, we really do need to have enlightenment, and that comes from you. So we ask through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would enlighten our minds, that would you please give us eyes to see, and would you please give us ears that hear. And I pray beyond that, Father, that our hearts would be in this place where we're moldable this morning, that we're willing to receive what your word says, and that we would respond accordingly. So I pray for that. I pray for every single person who's in the auditorium, every single person who's watching virtually right now. God, that you would unite us together as we examine your word. We pray for that in Jesus' majestic name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, here's the question, is God angry? And let's go right to Scripture, and let me take you to the book of Psalms. First of all, before we go to Romans, look with me at this, Psalm 711. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Maybe you never thought of God that way. And you feel like you could answer the question already, like, okay, well, there it is. And just so there's no confusion, let's look at the Hebrew word. Remember, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, New Testament's written in primarily Greek, some Aramaic. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament for this particular word, you see it in your notes this morning, but you also see it on the screen, Zaham. And we see this definition here of humanity, to foam at the mouth, to be enraged, to abhor, to be angry, indignation. And then when it goes to God, it talks about fury, especially the fury of God when His displeasure is with sin. So right away, we have enough information to answer that hard question. Is God angry? Well, yes. Yes, God has anger. And then logically and naively, let's say, we could go to that issue and say, like, how much? Like, is he 20% ticked, right? Um, how do we gauge that? And we immediately begin transferring human emotion over to God. Because we know of individuals that we would say, well, uh, they're kind of mad, maybe they're too mad to approach. Is she so mad that I shouldn't go talk to her right now? Or just give her some space? So how ticked is he? And we begin gauging it through a human lens. Probably the bigger and more important issue 
is who or what is the anger toward? So let's begin with this reality. There's righteous anger and there's unrighteous anger. And let me give you an example of unrighteous anger that I've encountered just myself in the last week, okay? So my wife asked me to go to the grocery store and I have her list of things that she wants. And the first place I go to in the grocery store I came across was the meat counter. And so I go to the guy who's at the meat counter and mind you, it's nine o'clock at night and I think they're getting ready to clean things up and, <clears throat> and take care of their instruments. And so uh, I'm standing there for a minute and I'm watching this guy, he's probably about 22, 23. He's working in the background and he's kind of ignoring me. I'm feeling a little slighted at the moment because I'm standing there for a while and there's no number to draw and there's nobody else around me. And then he turns and looks at me and says, what? Okay. So, you know, immediately job performance review wasn't going so well at that point. And I said, well, I'd like to buy some of your sliced turkey that's on sale. Which one? I said, well, there's a sign right here on the counter. And I'm actually starting to feel like he's going to throw a knife at me. Okay. And so I said, well, this one that's right here on the sign, it, it says this honey roast turkey. Okay. Gets his plastic gloves out. He's sliding them on. Then he looks at me. How much? I said, just a pound. That'll be all I need. Right. Okay. So while he's slicing it, I'm afraid he's putting stuff into my food. And, and then I'm thinking... He really doesn't like his job. He's having such a bad day. Something's happened to him. Maybe it's just I'm the brunt of it because I've shown up in that moment, but I'm thinking, unrighteous anger. A week ago, Fourth of July weekend, Chicago, Illinois, 99 people are shot. One is too many, but 99, unrighteous anger. Can we say short fuse when it comes to humanity? And I think you're probably experiencing it yourself. I, I know news reports are saying that across our nation, road rage is at an all-time high. Maybe it has a lot to do with COVID. I don't know. There's a lot of displeasure among people, but we can immediately associate unrighteous anger with humanity and think that maybe that would transfer over to God. So we've got to acknowledge a problem right away when we address this issue. When we think of God's wrath and when we think of God's anger, we tend to translate human emotion to God because it's all we know. We've seen people become unhinged, and we can think that that is God. So we have to be very, very careful not to assign our imperfect anger over to the Father. God is never irrational. God is never at this place where He will fly off the handle. He never loses control, and he's never sadistic because God is righteous. Therefore, his anger is always righteous because he is righteous. If you agree with that, say amen. If you're in agreement with that, you're in agreement with the Bible. The Bible actually describes it in multiple ways, but here's one from Psalm 97, verse 6. The heavens declare his righteousness. Now, add to these layers that we've just talked about another complication. Here's the other complication. We are constantly bombarded with a message in society, especially within culture here in the United States, that says, God is just love, 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 like big teddy bear hugs. So even to the degree that there's billboard campaigns, 
And you can check it yourself, you'll find it in billboard campaigns with very simple statements. God is not angry, exclamation point. And I kind of wonder as I look at that, how angry is God at that billboard sign saying that He's not angry? A misunderstanding, and a misunderstanding of what His anger really, really is. So naturally, confusion sets in with the thought of how can there be a God of love, because He is, and yet how can there be a God of, of wrath at the same time? My contention is this, without a proper understanding of God's wrath, you cannot understand the love of God. If you understand the wrath of God, you understand and comprehend His love. So it's foolish to ignore the Bible and say that the Bible doesn't speak of God's anger when it clearly does. Let me just take you back to Psalms for one second. Look with me on the screen again at verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. Notice this is speaking about God. Notice the times that it says He is always in a capital H. If a man does not repent, he, meaning God, will sharpen his sword. He has, a bent, he has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Uh, clearly, the writer is using analogies here. God's not sitting up in heaven with a very large bow as an archer with an arrow drawn back. But he's giving a proper analogy because you don't want to be on the receiving end of that. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, I'm just going to challenge you right now to begin thinking how grateful you are, how grateful you are for this truth this morning of the gospel of the grace of God that has shown up in Jesus Christ. Because the reality is Jesus has delivered us from the wrath of God. That's what Scripture says. Look with me on the screen at this one, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, notice that it says, to come. That means it's talking about a future wrath. It's actually talking about the day of God's wrath. That's the way Romans describes it. Jesus spoke about this moment when there's a, there's a return of the king and the wrath of God will come with it. It's in Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels. And what Jesus is speaking about there, He's talking about when the holiness of God will be realized in all of its awesomeness. But that's the day of God's wrath. But then there's the wrath of God that Romans describes as being revealed. And that's what we need to understand if we're going to answer this question accurately, is God angry? This wrath of God that's being revealed has a purpose in it. It's not a judicial wrath, it's a, a wrath to draw people back into relationship with Him. And when it comes to that wrath and that anger, wrath and anger is not really a strong enough word. The Bible actually describes God as being furious over this issue that we're going to talk about this morning. God has a furious anger with a specific focus. So let's just put all the cards on the table. God is angry. The question is towards who or what. His anger is with wicked people who are living wicked lives in a wicked world. And that's what Romans 1.18 hits head on. Go with me to verse 18 if you would. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Question. Can you be angry with someone and love them at the same time? Sure. I love my Detroit Tigers. I'm angry with my Detroit Tigers. I love my nation. I can be really angry with my nation. But that's on a human level. And we're very tempted to draw the human emotion over to this description of God. This word wrath, as it's used in the Greek language, you're going to feel like I'm trying to teach you the Greek language this morning. I promise you I'm not, but there's going to be five Greek words for you. So this first word that's being described here, this word wrath, is the word orge or orge. And, and we actually mistranslated it when it moved over into the Latin language. They misinterpreted it and called it ogre. And then we use the term freely, ogre today in the English world, but orge or orge is, is talking about the excitement of the mind, but as you watch it bleed over into this definition, it's an abhorrence, an indignation, a vengeance, a wrathful vengeance. So how do I understand it in my world? What, what is the wrath of God? In the way that's being described in Romans, you'll see this definition on the screen. Wrath is God's active opposition to everything opposed to Him. Things that are opposed to Him, that's what He pours out His wrath towards. But Paul also uses this word revealing, that God's revealing His wrath. How do I understand that? In the Greek language, it actually means to take the lid off from something, and that's the next Greek word that you see here on the screen, apocalypto, it's where we get the word apocalypse to reveal something. You might pull the lid off from a can of paint and look inside, see if the color is the color that you expected it to be. Apocalypto has this sense to it to disclose something that was previously covered. What is this wrath against? Well, verse 18 says, against ungodliness and against unrighteousness. You know what that is? That's a product of a faulty relationship to God. Hear it this way. Ungodliness is a lack of worship or a lack of reverence of the true God. And what it does is it leads to all forms of false worship of things other than God. Now, that's ungodliness. But unrighteousness, that's a focus of the result of ungodliness. In other words, if a person is ungodly, they're naturally going to behave unrighteously. So think of it this way. Ungodliness leads to unrighteousness. Now, let me just break apart those words for you just for a moment, but hear it this way. Mankind, humanity, and by that I mean individuals who are not redeemed and not in relationship with Jesus, humanity cannot act righteously because they're not rightly related to God. So verse 18 uses this word ungodliness, and I told you it's a lack of reverence or a lack of a fear of the living God. Here's the next Greek word. They're going really fast for you. Asebia. It means exactly what you think it does, impiety or, or a wickedness. Here's how it surfaces in your world. It surfaces in really immoral behavior that are bold exhibitions against God and His ways. And it's not simply neglect. It's open rebellion that sounds like this. I know you're there. I don't care that you're there. I'm going to do whatever I want, and who are you to tell me differently? That's the ungodliness that Romans is really describing. 
But it also uses this word unrighteousness in verse 18. And I told you that's the lack of fear of God that's producing something. Here's what it produces. It produces a lack of justice. And we're talking about biblical justice here, unjust behavior. And that's the fourth Greek word already, adikia. And this is a legal term. It's borrowed from the court systems. And it's talking about something who's behaving in an unjust way or an unrighteous way. Now, let's assemble all of those things in your mind and put those two words together. As you look back over the history of the world, you will find that history demonstrates that nations and people groups and individuals that forsake God, they lose their moral bearing. In their ungodliness, they lose their moral bearing, and therefore, the actions that they take, their unrighteous behavior, becomes twisted and corrupted. And their actions towards individuals becomes twisted and corrupted, especially towards those who try to live righteously in the midst of a perverse and corrupt and wicked generation. That's what history demonstrates. Now, logically, you would expect people to be outraged by injustice. Let me show you a quote from Dr. Trench. He wrote this book back in the 1980s, and it was a, a landmark book, but when Dr. Trench made this statement, it really kind of stood out to me. 1983, he said this, there can be no sure or sadder token of an utterly prostrate moral condition than not being able to be angry with sin. When a nation or a person loses its moral compass, it loses its capacity to be outraged by sin and begins to call right wrong and wrong right. And the outcome is that it produces a very confused and disoriented upcoming next generation. And they don't know what to do with the information that's being presented to them. And so they begin reacting to the things that culture and society is saying is okay. But also, that person or that nation finds itself directing a lot of energy towards unjustly persecuting those who disagree with them. So history demonstrates a nation that moves further and further and further away from God it slowly moves its people to a completely what they believe to be a new thought. And here's the new thought, which is actually as old as time. We'll do what's right in our eyes, what we believe is right for our society and our culture. If you go back to the time of Noah and move forward, you find that the Bible is replete with saying things like, and that generation, they did whatever was right in their own eyes. And then God's judgment falls, and you find it repeated over and over, and every generation thinks they're the first one to discover that. So Paul's argument is the result in verse 18, you see this on the screen, is that they will suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And Paul's argument is this, what humans think that they can suppress, God chooses to take the lid off. God allows people to look inside and understand one of the most stinging rebukes that Jesus gave to the Pharisees is when he accused them of taking away the keys to knowledge and preventing other people from entering the kingdom. Remember, the Pharisees are the stewards of truth. They're the ones who are supposed to be championing the things of God. 
But instead, Jesus accused them of actually being the blind who were leading other people into blindness and actually preventing them from understanding and causing blindness in others. So instead of championing God's truth, those who suppress the truth ultimately find themselves applauding individuals who are devolving into deeper and deeper and deeper sin, saying, you go, fantastic, how great is this? And they find themselves applauding things they would have never found God applauding. Because wickedness by its very essence denies truth, it can do nothing other than move in the opposite direction from the truth of God's Word. And left to the fallen humanness of which we are, truth, Paul says, is suppressed. So here in the next verse is why God's taking the lid off. Here, in other words, is the reason behind His anger, and you find it in verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Let's just bear down on part of that phrase, that which is known. Now, the Greek text renders it very specifically, that which is knowable, that which you can know. Now, obviously, we can't know all that there is to know about God. We would love to, but we just can't. And you've probably heard me say over time, if you've been a New Hope very long, that when God handed us the Bible, I feel like He kind of handed us the third grade version. Like, here, chew on this for a few thousand years. And I know that when we step into eternity, God's going to just blow our mind with information, with all kinds of understanding of things like, I had no idea. But for now, we have His revealed Word, the things that He wants us to know. And those things are knowable. Paul's point is this, that which is capable of being known is indeed known. That which you can know from the Bible and apart from the Bible. And I want to explore that portion of apart from the Bible with you for just a moment. Here's a really sweeping statement for you to just bear with me for what it is. When it comes to what we would call unredeemed humanity, those who are not yet in a relationship with Jesus, that portion of humanity stands under God's wrath because they ignore what they know, not what they don't know. Hear that again. Standing under God's wrath because of what they know, not what they don't know. So here's what God is saying in these scriptures. It is characteristic of mankind that we will know much more than we will translate into response. So you find Paul wading into some very deep water here that is especially applicable to us in 2021. First and foremost, and I, I'm hoping that you're in agreement with me, maybe you would even say amen to this, God is absolutely just. That means He will never deliver condemnation unless it's deserved. We've already said he's a righteous God. He can't act unrighteously. That means he's just. He can't act unjustly. So he will never deliver condemnation unless it's deserved. So let me just refer back to that sweeping statement a moment ago. Humanity stands under God's wrath because they ignore what they know. Well, verse 19 is saying, because that which is known about God is evident. For God made it evident, according to what Paul wrote here. He's saying creation bears witness. The evidence is really, really plain. 
So if God is revealing something, and according to verse 19, He is, that would mean God is justified in His wrath because of the willful ignorance of the natural revelation. These would be the things that are apart from the Bible. So let me just go through four things with you real quickly that are apart from the Bible. And Paul touches on that in verse 19 and 20. There's four specifics of natural revelation. Now, we would say special revelation is the result of what you have in your hand today. If you're holding a Bible in your hand, whether electronically or hard copy, that's the special revelation of God, things that He gave to us from His nature and character, things that He wanted us to know. But then there's natural revelation, the things that are in creation, and that's what Paul's writing about here. So here's the four specifics of natural revelation. First of all, he referred to it in verse 19. He says that, number one, it's well-defined and it's very clear because he uses the word evident. The word evident indicates it's right there in front of our eyes. The second one, it's understood. He uses that word in verse 20, meaning it doesn't stop with perceiving. You're not just perceiving it. It's including thought. It's including contemplation. It's including arriving at a conclusion. Number three, it's a constant evidence because he said, it's been sustained since the creation of the world. These things are right there in front of our eyes since the creation of the world. And the fourth one, it's limited, meaning it only reveals certain attributes of God his eternal power, and his divine nature. You have to lurk elsewhere to understand his grace and his mercy. But here, specifically, it's revealing his power. So verse 19, God made it evident. And here's that last Greek word, phaneros. Uh, phaneros is talking about something that's shining, apparent. It's, it's very externally, publicly manifest. So logically, we would say... If God made something shining, if God made something apparent, we should be able to see it, right? We must certainly be able to identify what is he talking about. Well, Paul specifies the content of this revelation. Look with me at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. If you have your Bible open right now, or maybe your notes, or you can write it on your phone, write this down, God wants us to know Him. That's what Romans 1 is saying. He's not trying to hide Himself in a corner. He's saying, I'm here. I want you to know me. And that's what verse 20 is screaming here. So He wants us to know Him, and He reveals through the light of natural creation. There are attributes of God that we can perceive in part. And Paul's saying His eternal power, we can perceive that in part. His divine nature, we can perceive that in part. When Dr. Luke wrote the book of Acts, he touched on some of that. Look with me on the screen at this. Acts 14, 17. He did not leave Himself without witness, meaning God, in that He did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. See, he's just touching on the basics. Did you, did you eat this morning? Basic food. You draw on breath, you got oxygen. You, you, you're walking on a planet that gives you nighttime and daytime, nighttime to sleep, daytime to wake. Those are the basics. That's what Acts is touching on. He gave you food. He gave you rain in season. 
And he's simply saying what Paul is saying. God's natural revelation of himself is not obscure. He's exposed himself through creation, and he goes on to say it can clearly be seen being understood through what has been made. Well, what do you and I see today that the ancients also saw? The ancients could see a small seed grow into a giant oak tree. It's amazing. The ancients could see childbirth. It's amazing. The ancients could see sunsets. They're astounding. God created a rotation of the, the planets. What about the nighttime sky? It reveals a spectacle unlike anything that mankind can possibly comprehend. Night after night after night for millennia, God's screaming out, look at me, here I am, I'm totally visible for you. And God continues to pull back the curtain on the heavens and say, here I am. This is what Romans 1 is going after. Psalm 19 emphasizes that, verse 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Now, let me just bear down on one illustration for you with the word expanse. I have to frame my mind around this to make it really practical so I can comprehend this. I bet you're the same. Our, our planet Earth, our globe, is 25,000 miles in circumference. That in itself is just amazing, yet we're considered one of the smaller planets. 25,000 miles in circumference, yet right at this very moment while you're sitting here this morning, our globe is spinning at 1,000 miles an hour. Did you feel dizzy or imbalanced this morning when you got up? Well, no, because it's so big, you can't feel it. Moving at 1,000 miles an hour, we're also going through the solar system, circling the sun year after year at 60,000 miles an hour with precision, never off course, never off kilter, always exactly where it needs to be. And yet, with all of those things true, even so, if you wanted to leave our galaxy and travel to the other side of our galaxy, you'd have to travel at the speed of light, which, by the way, is 186,000 miles per second for 125,000 years to get from one side of the Milky Way galaxy to the other side of the Milky Way galaxy. The expanse is declaring the glory of God. Now, even to frame my mind around that, I need perspective. I need perspective of time and distance, and maybe this will help you. One million seconds ago was 12 days ago. One billion seconds ago was March 1986. One trillion seconds ago was 29,700 B.C. Whoa. Gives you a new perspective on national debt, doesn't it? <laughs> right? Like, we throw those numbers around so easily. Trillions? Really? The expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Do you, you see what God is after? 
God gave us evidence in the expanse so that we would know Him and bring glory to Him. And it's absolutely unimaginable that such power and intricacy could have just happened by random chance. And gratefully, even those who are not in relationship with God who are scientists are coming to those same conclusions. You might remember in May when we took on the hard question, why should I believe the Bible? We referred to Dr. Robert Jastrow. I'm going to refer to him again this morning. He's a remarkable individual because not only because he was the director of NASA's Goddard Space Center, but Dr. Jastrow kind of blew the mind of the scientific community because not as a Christian, because he's agnostic, Dr. Jastrow wrote something remarkably biblically similar. Let me show you his quote. It's also in your notes this morning. The astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. What? Now stop with just that sentence. See, the scientific community said, what are you saying? I can't believe you wrote that. Keep going with his quote. The essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. Consider the enormousness of the problem. Science has proved that the universe exploded into being at a certain moment in time. It asks what caused produced this effect. Who or what put, mad, put the matter and energy into the universe? And science cannot answer these questions. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak as he pulls himself over the final rock. He is greeted by a band of theologians who have been there for centuries. You can see why that rocked their world. This is the director of NASA. Paul writes it this way in verse 20, they're without excuse. They're under the wrath of God because they're without excuse. We have great knowledge, new hope, living in 2021. We have great knowledge, so therefore we have much to answer for. We are the most privileged generation ever to walk the face of this earth when it comes to information. Have you stopped to consider that? What would Alexander the Great have given to fly? What about Napoleon if he had a cell phone? Probably no Waterloo. What about Copernicus? What if he had Hubble's space scope available to him? In 2021, we have opportunities of knowing God that are far beyond that which of any of the ancients ever enjoyed. We are able to see much that was hidden from them beyond our amazing technologies, not just our technologies. Do you know what you have? You have the complete Word of God. In English or Spanish, if you want it. There's a few tribes that still don't have it in their tongue. But by and large, you can get a copy of the Bible any place, New Testament, Old Testament. We have the Bible and something the ancients did not have prior to Jesus. We have the clear revelation of God in the person of His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about that last week. He is the image of the invisible God. I have a lot to be responsible for. So when he purposely reveals for our profit, for our benefit, 
To know him, when that information is suppressed, it is the greatest offense to him. So does God have a right to be ticked? Is God angry? See, to rebel against God's self-revelation is to incur the result of that rebellion. And the result of that rebellion is wrath. In every age and in every geographical location, mankind has had sufficient opportunity to obtain knowledge of God. And for those with eyes to see and with ears to hear, God's writing across the sky, here I am, pay attention. Do you get it? And the one who refuses, Paul is writing, that one has no defense because he's refusing the knowledge that he does have, not the knowledge that he doesn't have. They have way more than enough information. So no person can claim ignorance. Now, when it comes to 11.45 in the morning and you're sitting in a church service, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can continue to find yourself feeling as you hear these things a little superior. Like, well, I got it. Too bad they didn't. Until you read what Paul wrote in Titus, Titus chapter 3. It actually says this. We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. And thus you see why I asked you in the very beginning, how thankful should we be for the gospel of grace? How grateful should we be that Jesus delivered us from the wrath to come? Let me remind you of 1 Thessalonians. Look with me one more time on the screen. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. If you're new to church this morning, I want you to hear this very plainly and very clearly if you don't know Jesus yet. Jesus eternally satisfied God's wrath. He satisfied God's wrath towards my sin, Mark Kring's sin, when he died on the cross. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, he did that very thing for you. He offered himself as the atoning sacrifice, big $10 church word, propitiation. He made himself a propitiation so that whatever sin you've committed in your past, in your present, last night, or future 10 years from now, Jesus died to satisfy God's wrath against that sin, to wipe it out past, present, and future. That's why he could say on the cross, it is finished. He came to do exactly what he accomplished, and he turned God's wrath away from us forever. So when we hear that God has anger, we can be tempted to think that God is out to get us. I want you to know this. God is very happy to provide hope to sinners. Jesus spoke to this. Look with me on the screen. Luke 15, 7. I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus said there's a party in heaven God throws a party on your behalf because he's so happy to provide hope to sinners. And we know that it's talking about God because in the parable of the prodigal son, that's exactly what the figurehead who plays the role of God in that parable did. He runs out and he grabs his son and throws his arms around and hugs him because the son returned. 
Because for the one who returns to him, get your amens ready. There is no now, no condemnation, right? No condemnation. The wrath to come doesn't apply to you. The wrath is removed. Anybody want to read Romans 8.1 right now? Look with me on the screen. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That verse means the wrath is gone. It's over. Completely removed. No, no guilt, no condemnation, no punishment. Jesus took it all. So Jesus made propitiation for anyone who will trust him for salvation. Therefore, the wrath of God is not on a believer. But, and I say this truth in love, for those who are not in Christ Jesus, the wrath of God remains. Ephesians 2 says, by nature, we are children of wrath. But as believers, we do please God, and he has great delight in us. So here's a logical question that believers ask. Is God still angry with me when I sin? Does he carry out anger towards me? Think of this phrase next time you hear that. Disciplined, not condemned. Disciplined, not condemned. Although our sin will incur his displeasure, and it does according to Hebrews God's condemning anger was completely absorbed by Jesus on the cross. Last thought. If you have not yet trusted Christ, do not imagine that God's patience towards you means that he is not angry with you. It's really hard to hear, but it's the truth of the Bible. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is your only hope to avert the wrath of God. And that's why I say, you cannot understand the love of God until you comprehend the wrath of God. And until you comprehend the wrath of God, you cannot understand the love of God. Are we good? Okay. That gives us a huge responsibility. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, God's word says that our responsibility as believers in Jesus is to be praying for those who are lost, that the blindness would be removed. I'm gonna pray for you that way, that you would take that responsibility seriously. Let's pray together. Father, we know individuals in our own lives, in our social circle, who are not yet in a relationship with you. And, and whether they will be ever is only known by you, for those individuals that we encounter, Father, I pray that you would remind us each and every time to be lifting them up before you, asking that you would draw them into relationship. For the leaders of our nation, for the leaders of our state, God, we lift up individuals to you who may not yet have a relationship with you, asking that you would give them the capacity to see the Lord Jesus Christ and surrender their lives in obedience to him. I pray for everybody who's in this auditorium and every person who's watching virtually right now, God, that you would use us as your representatives in this world, that we would walk before you as people who take seriously the responsibility that we have to represent you well 
in this world that you love so very, very much. Do your work through us, Father. We pray for that this week. And we ask for that in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm going to be right down here in the front after the service. I'd love to connect with you. And if you want somebody to pray with you over in the prayer room over there, individuals will be happy to talk with you or have prayer time with you. In the meantime, have a great week, New Hope.